Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We come to Parshat Vayigash this week. We were in Parshat Miketz last week. And now we are in Parshat Vayigash coming to the end of the Joseph novella, coming to the end of this full quarter of the book of Genesis that is spent on this parsha. I mean, on this uh, story. So this is a story that's that's cr- really crafted to be of a piece. Often we get very terse, very packed, very dense, like action, 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 you know, and then it's over, right? So often the stories in Torah are, are very brief. The Joseph story is a well-crafted in long for, for Torah by Torah standards a long uh, story and so it's taking us you know weeks to get through what often is just like one we read one story in one hour and we're done so we're in the third week of studying uh, Joseph uh, and we're at the end of every parsha because we're on the third year of a three year cycle so we read Torah on a triennial cycle here and uh, so we are in the third third of every Parsha. So we're going to look at the last third of Parshat Vayigash. And it begins at chapter 46, verse 28. Judah he sent ahead of him to Joseph <clears throat> to show him the way to Goshen. So they came to the region of Goshen. Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him and threw himself on his neck weeping all the time. Israel said to Joseph, now that I've seen your face, for you're still alive, I can die at last. Okay, so we have had the brothers have come down. We uh, have Joseph. We we missed that because it's in another hunk that we didn't read. Uh, But Joseph comes out to his brothers. He says, it is I, Joseph, right? And um, and essentially all this was meant to happen so that I could save you from famine. So um, don't worry about it. I'm not going to hurt you, right? I'm not going to take retribution um, because I understand that I've been used by a greater plan uh, to be here and to be in this position so that I could save all of your lives. Thank you, Eleanor. Uh, and so now here comes, uh, so the family, the brothers are there and they send for Yaakov, right? They send for Jacob. He's going to come down and live in Goshen in northern uh, Egypt because there is a raging famine, right? That reaches all the way to Canaan. There's a a huge, serious famine in the entire region. Uh, And so Egypt is where there's food. Joseph, of course, has access to all of that food and so brings his father down. And here we have um, that uh, Joseph knows that Jacob's coming. And he orders his chariot and goes to Goshen as is appropriate to meet his father. You don't wait for your father to come to you. Um, It's disrespectful, right? You go out to meet your father. uh, And he presents himself to his father, embraces him. And again, we get Joseph weeping. So this is um, something that we keep seeing with Joseph as him being moved uh, to tears. And he weeps on his father's neck for a good while, right? So, you, I mean, you can imagine, as we talked last week, you can imagine the emotion, right? Joseph seeing his father for the first time in 
and his adult life. Is the Hebrew clear? It says he presented himself to him, which he that is? Um, I'm assuming it's Joseph presenting himself to his father. <clears throat> the English kind of it could be either way. Also in Hebrew. Oh. Right? He, it's oh. still he oh, it's, did this to him. So we, also, we always have to figure out who's the he and who's the him. Um, but presumably, Joseph presents himself. To, I, don't, I mean, actually, my notes don't tell me anything about it. Um, okay, so let's go to 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'm going to go up and tell Pharaoh. I will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. In fact, they're breeders of livestock. And they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they own. Therefore, when Pharaoh sends for you and asks, what do you do? Say, your servants have been breeding livestock from youth onwards to now, both our households and our father's households, in order that you may live in the region of Goshen. For Egyptians find shepherds abhorrent. Okay. So, remember we talked about uh, to'eva, the word abomination, right? That is how the Egyptians consider people who deal with sheep. They are to'eva. They are abominable. Why? Why? Smell. They smell, says Elena Allen. They do. They do, he says. Um, So they... Like they are abhorrent to the Egyptians. Um, probably that uh, these are. Remember, Joseph is the vizier of Egypt, right? So he, the people he's bringing his family to, are upper crust palace dwellers. Also, the cattle people, the Egyptians, <laughs> because that's always a battle between sheep and cattle. Interesting. I, yeah, I know, right? It's possibly, but uh, it seems that uh, I mean th- these are very sophisticated. This yeah, is the upper just... crust of Egypt, right? <coughs> like shepherds would be like, ew, <laughs> right? Like but they also the Egyptians didn't want to sit down, didn't want to eat, right? Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like the same thing. So, well, they they can't eat with Semites. (laughs) It's an abomination to sit and eat with, it's Toeva, to sit and eat with the Hebrews. (laughs) Right, they know, the Egyptians know, and Pharaoh knows that Joseph was an Israelite. We don't know, but presumably once his family comes down, like, it's like, now it's obvious where he comes from. Right, but but Jacob's wealthy. Jacob's a wealthy man. All right, but yes, he, they now they must get it that Joseph is one of them. All right, 47. Joseph then went and told Pharaoh, saying, My father, my brothers, their flocks, their herds, and all that they own have arrived from the land of Canaan, and now they are in the region of Goshen. And of all his brothers, he picked five men and presented them before Pharaoh. When Pharaoh said to his brothers, What do you do? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both our households and our father's households. They went on to say to Pharaoh, we have come to stay in the land because there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is oppressive in the land of Canaan. Now we ask you to let your servants settle in the region of Goshen. Pharaoh then said to Joseph, now that your father and brothers have reached you, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land, let them settle in the region of Goshen, and if you know of any able men among them, 
Make them overseers of my livestock. Okay. So they say we are here, right? Verse 4, Vayomru el paro lagur ba'aretz banu. To sojourn in your land, in this land have we come. So it is not permanent. They are there to ride out the famine. So they're there just because in Kna'an there's no food. So they're going to come just kind of sojourn in Egypt. We get this in the Passover Haggadah, right? That they went to sojourn there, mm-hmm. right? Down in uh, Egypt. Pharaoh welcomes them and gives them the region of Goshen. Let's go to verse 13. 13. At this time, no food was to be had in the entire land, for the famine bore down very heavily. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished on account of the famine. Joseph now collected all the silver found in the lands of Egypt and Canaan as payment for the grain that the people were buying. And Joseph brought that silver into Pharaoh's palace. When the silver in the lands of Egypt and Canaan was spent, all Egypt flocked to Joseph, saying, Let us have food. Why should we drop dead in front of you because the silver is exhausted? Joseph replied, Bring your livestock, and I will give it to you in exchange for your livestock if the silver is exhausted. They therefore brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for horses, holding his sheep and cattle and asses. That year he kept them alive with food in exchange for all their livestock. Go on. That year ended, and they approached him in the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that the silver is spent and our animal holdings belong to my Lord. There's nothing left before my Lord but our bodies and our soil. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our soil? Buy us and our soil in exchange for food. We and our soil will be slaves to Pharaoh. Distribute seed so we can live and not die, so the land is not deserted. Joseph then bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh, for each Egyptian has sold his field because the famine had overwhelmed them. Thus the land came into Pharaoh's possession, and thus he made serfs of the people from one end of the Egyptian border to the other. Only the land belonging to the priests did he not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they ate their allotted portion that Pharaoh had given them. They therefore did not sell their land. Okay. So, Valechem ein haaretz, and there was no lechem, there was no bread in all of the land. Because the famine was seriously heavy. So, there's, there's no food anywhere, anywhere that anyone can get to. Except Joseph had some. <laughs> so, there's no bread anywhere in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. So Joseph gathers all the money that's to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the rations that were procured, and Joseph brings the money into Pharaoh's palace. So people are coming from Canaan to Egypt because there's no grain. So now foreigners are coming also, and obviously the local population um, are coming, and it's a seven-year famine. Remember, Joseph has seven years of bumper crops? Seven years of bumper crops are on their way. Right, so, um, yes, I know every word of the musical. We did it in fourth grade. Ask my family. They will be happy to tell you. Don't get her started. It goes on for 20 minutes. So, um, 
seven years of bumper crops, he puts the grain away, and then there's a seven-year famine. That's a long time. Seven years is a really long time when you're talking about crops failing and there being nothing available to eat. So, um, so both people in Canaan and people in Egypt, they can only turn to Pharaoh and Joseph as Pharaoh's representative to buy grain. So they now everyone has spent all the money they have to buy grain. I mean, figure a year, you know, or whatever, like they, it, two years, whatever it is, they, they've spent all of their money. But notice it says that Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's palace. Joseph is not doing this for himself. He doesn't keep it for himself. He doesn't make a profit for himself. It immediately goes to Pharaoh. All of it goes to Pharaoh. And when the money gave out in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread, lest we die before your very eyes, for the money is gone. And Joseph says what? Bring your livestock. And I will sell to you against your livestock if the money's gone. So now bring your, if, if your liquid assets are gone, now you dig into your 401k, <laughs> right? G- give me your stock, right? You know, give me the stuff that you have that you've invested in that's your, you know, your, back, your backup. So your flocks, your cattle, so the cattle, and horses and sheep and donkeys, all of it, now Joseph gets for Pharaoh. Then another year goes by and they come to him and we cannot hide from my Lord that with all the money and animals, stocks consigned to my Lord, nothing is left at my Lord's disposal save our persons and our farmland. Let us not perish before your eyes, both we and our land. Take us and our land in exchange for bread. And we with our land will be serfs to Pharaoh. Provide the seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not become a waste. So what's happened is now Joseph's taken all of their livestock, all of their stocks, and now they have nothing left. Everything's gone that they have except their persons and the land. And so Joseph says, very well, you, I'll take the land and I'll take y'all um, as serfs to work the land. So they get to work the land and get to eat off of, well, of course, right now they can't eat from the land because the land isn't producing anything. Uh, but in the future, they'll be able to stay on the land. But now the land belongs to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Now all of the land of Egypt belongs to the crown. And the human beings there are now all serfs. Okay. And the question, and this might be one that everyone knows the answer to, and somehow I just missed it. Was everyone vegan at the time? Were they not kill an animal and eat an animal? I mean, pres- presumably, yes, they could have eaten an animal, but that's not going to sustain. I mean, what it's saying is that there's just not. It's a, it's a think of Yemen. Right. I mean, it, it's it's a famine. Like it's you know, Ethiopia. Think about you know those times where there's just massive food shortage. So you don't have a lot to feed your animals. You don't have grain to feed your animals. You you know so like they're not they're not healthy either. Like they're not fat. You remember his dream? Seven fat cows, right? Come out of the Nile and they eat. Set no seven skinny cows come out and they eat seven fat cows and it doesn't change their 
it doesn't they don't gain any weight right you know so you have to think everything's emaciated mm-hmm. so my question is what was joseph thinking because uh, so, we're, we're going to get there. Well, let, let me just okay. let me just finish. He's basically angled it so that the Israelites are are serfs are not slaves. They're close. Uh, and didn't he have enough foresight or dreams or whatever to be able to keep his his family out of the problems that he's getting? Well, we're we're going to go there. My question is: Did the Pharaoh know? From the beginning, that Joseph was Jewish, was a, was an Israelite. Don't know. And did he have any concern about all of these Israelites coming in? Not here. It's no, not, not not here. Story. Not yet. You don't even see that now. No. Pharaoh. No. There's no. There's no concern on Pharaoh's part right now. This is Joseph's family. Right. They should come. They should be welcome. They should. Canaanites is, is who cares? Like, there's a lot of Canaanites hanging out in Egypt, particularly when there's a famine. They were still really Canaanites too, not. Sure, J- Jacob's family are Canaanite at, at this point, um, not for very long, only for three generations, right? Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldees, so it's only the third generation of them living in. Canaan, but but they're Semites, like they're not Egyptians, and they wouldn't eat with them. But he would welcome the family in. Yes, he's making a lot of money. Yeah, that's maybe that's. I mean, they're the welfare state. This is is, (laughs) right. So, all right. So, not yet. But if we look, uh, go to verse twenty-seven. Bert, twenty-seven. Israel thus settled in the land of Egypt. In the region of Goshen, they struck roots in it, were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. Okay. So, Yisrael and Israel settled in Egypt. All right. So, of course, we're going to get the name Israel instead of Yaakov here. Why do you think Torah uses Israel instead of Yaakov here? Thanks, Mark. I try. <laughs> They're referring to the whole family. This, they could have just said Yaakov. It doesn't say B'nai Yisrael, right? It says Yisrael. It is the beginning of who's going to be the people Israel. This is the beginning, right? They, the, be, the beginnings of the people Israel go down to Egypt. Right, so it's 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 got to resonate that this is Israel because it's going to be Israel who comes out. I know that um, history tells us that the Israel, our Judaism, sprung up from people in Canaan. Yes. But is it conceivable that some of those Canaanites had come down to Egypt and yes. went back? Yes. Wow. Yes, it is likely that some Semites had some kind of experience in Egypt of being pretty well off and then being oppressed in some way and they get out, they go through the desert, they have some kind of desert experience and through and then they come Enjoying into that. Canaan bringing that. that story with them. The Canaanites that become Israelites are serfs. They're poor they're oppressed. So this story brought by this group resonates with the resident Canaanites. And as that group that brings the story rises to power, right, 
and their God becomes triumphant, the, that story is adopted by the Canaanites, who this become is Israelites. A transition with many layers and, and developmental uh, steps. Yes. It's a huge amount of detail here. Yes. Of what, who said what to whom, and a lot of it seems just repetitive. Okay. I'm just saying, right? Hello. Um, but one would ask why. Some rabbis said why. Okay. Um, so you know, remember, a lot of these were oral stories, right? And they have a cadence. You know, there's a cadence to, and they said, "Let us not die." Let da 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 da. They have to say that each time. Like when you tell children a story, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew the hat. Right. So you repeat. Right. There's a certain cadence to the tale. That I, I mean, why I don't know. That's a, somebody else has to do that research. But um, the, the repetition is part of the telling of the tale. So now we come to the question. So his family comes down. His it doesn't say anything about his family needing to get rid of their cattle or their flocks. It says the opposite. He, they prosper and they multiply greatly. So it seems, to your question, that Joseph has his family come down. Everyone around them is starving. They have sold themselves and their land to Pharaoh. And Joseph's family is living in a mansion with a swimming pool, right? And heavy hors d'oeuvres being passed. You know what? It's like, what? Like, what? So... All right, so let's, let's talk about the parallelism there, right? So, Joseph is the beloved son. Joseph is the favorite of Jacob. All the other brothers resent his relationship with Jacob. They also resent what he's given, right? The, the tunic, right? They resent his dreams of grandeur, and they essentially ruin his life. But it's not a... It's not a tunic. It's a many-colored uh, coat. Dream coat. But, no, what are they? Dream coat. It's Thank dream you. Coat. Jacob and his many-colored dream. Go into your song now. <laughs> Joseph's coat was elegant. The cut was fine. The tasteful style was good. There it is. So, right. We have to do that here with the kids. Yeah, we do. We do. I agree. I can teach the whole thing. So we um, have Joseph do setting up exactly the same scenario for his family that happened to him. Right. They have all this stuff when everyone around them is starving and have become servants to the crown. We know we know where this story goes. Anyone who's reading this or hearing it around the campfire knows the next book. Right? And the next book starts with uh this did not go over so well. Right? So 400 years later they, they have, I mean, or when we pick the story up, for 400 years, these people have been oppressed. Be, we have to wonder, is it not in part because Joseph set this up in a way that, that has the Egyptians turn on the Israelites, right? The earliest roots of anti-Semitism are right here. And it's Joseph who sets it in motion. 
ha ha ha. Somebody want to take a crack at that? <laughs> Is it, doesn't he have the foresight to see what would happen to his family? Well, you know, the other side of that question is, um, is what you said here about Israel, and then it goes on to say, Peru, the Euro, I mean, be fruitful and multiply. So, I'm just wondering whether uh, early mythological history, you know, doesn't pay a lot of attention to what the next chapter is going to be. <laughs> that will be written with the next group of writers. Okay, so we can say Joseph isn't worried about it. Right now, everything's great. It makes sense that he does this. No, no. I mean, is Goshen, is it near where the Egyptians were? Because it would seem that if Joseph, if they're, you know, prospering, the resentment would start immediately with the rest of them. I mean, how did they sure. get to the point where they had all of this, these goodies without being attacked by the native Population. Well, they do become attacked by the native population. But not, not so much later. Well, we don't know when. We pick up 400 years from here. Oh. oh. We don't know how long it took. Oh. But what we know is, you know, there arose a pharaoh in Egypt who did not remember Joseph. That's what we're told. And so the people are enslaved. We don't, they have been enslaved for 400 years when we get to Exodus. When we get to the beginning of the book of Exodus. Jody, what did you want to say? Could, could it be that greed took over and it became you know he was like okay so bring me this and bring me that without thinking this might not be the most ethical thing to do okay so is it that he he's overcome with greed and so doesn't think Sarah this may be the very first story that teaches us if we take care of our own only then we make trouble for ourselves eventually I think definitely one of the morals of this story is when we only look after our own, it always ends badly. Yeah. Always. Yes. So just as Joseph told his brothers, don't worry, this was ordained by God, Joseph is also setting up a scenario for the history of our people. Because if they hadn't gotten all of the wealth and then lost it, if we hadn't gotten all of the wealth and lost it and become slaves, we would not have had the same story. It's For sure. Yes. Our whole basis of morality is based on the fact that we were slaves. Okay, we know that. Yes. Joseph doesn't know that. Right. right? So he, he has dreams. He's carrying so, so Okay, so Joseph has dreams that say, take everything from all the Egyptians, take their land, their life, take everything and make them all serfs. Well, he seems to be prophetic. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I just, I, I, of course, it's our story, and without this, of course, we don't have the amazing you know, historical narrative that, that defines us as a people, for sure. You have to wonder, you have to wonder about the character Joseph. We get told when he has dreams. We get, we, he is fulfilling his dreams in terms of he's now the master of everything. His brothers have come and they're bowing to him. So for sure, he's, he understands that he has fulfilled his, his mission, what God wants for him or whatever. You have to wonder at this move. Yeah. Right, that he, as you said, doesn't, does he not get what's going to happen? 
Like the he's smart. He's is he drunk with power? Is he out of touch? Is he still angry and setting this up? Is he getting revenge? So we have to, you know, you have to wonder what's happening, as does Peter Pizzola. Yes? There seems to be quite a lot of mention of women. The rabbis consider they have a lot of wisdom, but they were seemingly considered in general others. Treated that way. I'm just wondering how this is pointed. I mean, this is pointed out quite a lot. Where in the commentary? Yeah. What are they pointing out about women here? Well, I'm reading about um, Sarah. Her mouth is full of wisdom. Genesis 276. Even before that, um, and then you know. All right, so so these are other stories. Right, but I guess my point is that they're um, <coughs> perhaps the feminine uh, wisdom and energy. It doesn't seem about that was maybe in. All right, so listen to my podcasts <laughs> from Sarah through Rebecca to Rachel and Leah. We we just did an intense amount of work on the matriarchal. Traditions and lines, matrilineal, all that stuff from Canaan, and how it's reflected in our stories. There, it's there. We we unearthed it when we did those stories. Right. So I, I guess there just seems a lot of masculine. This is definitely a masculine story. This is definitely about male power. This, although Joseph is fairly androgynous, so if you if you heard Rabbi Hyman's lecture. He spoke about that Yefeto are being beautiful of appearance is only used of women in the Torah, except in the case of Joseph, right? Um, so we're going to look at what Peter Pitzela has to say about that. So um, yes, this is definitely a, a male-dominated story for sure. Um, but if you if you look at the Sarah narratives, the Rebecca narratives, the Rachel Leah narratives, we have the remnants of a very strong matriarchal culture. And, and, and the remnants are here if you dig. Yeah, and my, my point being is that why did he, the question was, why would he have the foresight? And I wonder, because it was particularly it's pointed out that um, oh, the women had a lot of wise words. It doesn't seem that perhaps they were listened to. Much. Clearly, they're not here. Right. This is not about the women. There's, you're right, there's no women here. N- nothing. This is all male. Last week or the week before, we read that Joseph was God, not with God, but Joseph was God at some point. Uh, had God going through him. Is it reasonable to take the long view and to say that Israel could not have been Israel without forty years in the desert? Being of, co- of course. And so, of course, Joseph was. God. The woman behind you said exactly the same thing, right? That this is, it has to be this way because this is our story. So yes, we know that. You still have to wonder, I think, about character Joseph making these calls, right? We, I, maybe it's God working through, of course, but we can say, of course that's what the rabbis are going to say, right? The rabbis are going to say it's God. Well, duh, they have to go through, blah, blah, blah. of course. But we, who are studying this as literature, 
have to look at the character Joseph and how the narrator, the omniscient narrator, uses Joseph. And you have to go... Hmm? So let's look. Peter Pitsula, who wrote a book called Our Father's Wells. I've given you pieces from it before Maybe about Joseph. Joseph for money for toner for the zero. <laughs> yeah, we, we could use a check. Thank you, David, for, for pointing that out. All right. So we're going to look at a word that's used about Joseph. Right? Go to page 215. The second paragra- full paragraph down, which begins charisma. Charisma is a myth word. In it, we pay tribute to something alluring and dangerous about personal power that fascinates us and eludes our understanding. Though charismatic has traditionally modified the masculine, there is nothing gender-specific in the term. The charismatic person, demagogue, or demigod seems gifted beyond the ordinary, arousing in us the deepest ambivalence of admiration and envy, surrender and opposition. With a sexuality both potent and androgynous, such a person is often the object of both women and men's desires. (laughs) Charisma is precisely that irresistible mixture of the spiritual and the sexual that most deeply touches and at the same time confuses us. Culture Sorry, culture forms in eddies around such men and women and turns them into leaders, national figures, superstars. Joseph's story is in part the myth of the charismatic man who is thrust into political and public life and who faces the temptations and corruptions that come with extraordinary power. To your point, this is a male story about male power, about the ways, but Joseph... Like, he's, he's got an androgyny to him that draws both men and women to him sexually. Like, right, there's a way that charismatic people turn us on, right? right? They just do, right? And it freaks a lot of men out when they, like, get drawn to, like, a charismatic man, right? So, um, but that's just, that's how we respond as human beings to charisma. And there, there's an, and I'm not saying sexual desire. I'm saying there's an eroticism to there's a way we're awakened that confuses us, right? And sometimes it pisses us off. Like, I don't want to feel that. You know, like, and, but we're drawn to it at the same time, right? It's this push-pull. And that's Joseph, is what Peter Pizzolo is saying. Joseph has that quality that both draws people to him and confuses them. He becomes an object of opposition as well as attraction, is Pitzel a rabbi or psychologist or both? I, I, I don't know. I, I want to say psychologist. That's a very powerful book. This book is a very powerful book. It's What's a very book? powerful book about male, about the development of the male character and, and men's lives. Okay, thank you. Um, so, so he's talking here about the man who was thrust into political power and the temptations and corruption that come really easily once you have that kind of power. I, I think this is the way to read why Joseph does this. He has become, he's become so powerful that he's lost touch, right? And we're going to, I mean, he goes, he goes on really beautifully to talk about what he thinks is happening here. All right, go to page 216. 
216, go to the second full paragraph. Mm -hmm. If we stop his story at this point, we see in Joseph the myth of a man of power in all its glory and hollowness. On the one hand, he has climbed to supreme success in the world's terms. Newly cast in the role of Pharaoh's regent, he becomes a new character, complete with new props, sets, scenes, and auxiliaries. In the eyes of the Egyptians, he is and is named, to your point, a god, having risen meteorically from obscurity on the basis of his extraordinary charisma. We see him as they see him. We, too, are dazzled by his success. On the other hand, we know, and the Egyptians do not, that this achievement has taken Joseph farther than ever from his own identity. He is no longer even Joseph, but bears an exalted Egyptian name. The very trappings of his office trap him in isolation. He has lost his inferiority, and he has lost the kind of self-awareness, the wisdom it can bring. As a prisoner, Joseph was able to look past his own disappointments to notice the dejection of two inmates. Now, he is insulated from disappointment by his supreme election. The things that made Joseph Joseph were the fact that he was in a pit. The fact that he was a slave working his way up in Potiphar's house. The fact that he's in prison. It's there that Joseph says, it is God, not I. It's in prison, Joseph learns. It's God who is doing all this, not me. I'm just an instrument. It's as the dejected, powerless, nameless, hopeless, right, status, that status, that experience is what brings Joseph to understand that it is all divine and he is playing a part in a much bigger drama. His success, by definition in some ways, cancels that out. His access right to that is he's become incredibly distant from it in his meteoric rise to power. He is now insulated, right, from disappointment. So I think what Pitsula is saying is it is, of course, Joseph's suffering that brings Joseph to a sense of what is meaningful, that his life has meaning. He says that to the brothers. Don't worry, I'm not going to take revenge because this has all been set up so that I would be here to save your life. It's all good. But it was that suffering that got him there. And so, of course, if that's at the personal level, now we're going to move, as we end this book and start the next, to the national level, where, of course, we have to suffer to become the people who buy into a covenant saying you shall love the stranger as yourself. You shall take care of the stranger, the widowless, the widowless, the, the widow, the orphan, right? You, to become that people, we have to go into the pit. We have to be sold into slavery. So we can identify. Because that's the definition of how we develop that national character, the way Joseph developed his character. And when we become meteorically successful, we vote against immigration. (laughs) 
When we become too comfortable, we are isolated from disappointment. We are protected from suffering. We have so much, we have risen to such a place of power that we, like Joseph, are distanced from the very thing that made our lives meaningful. But we have TV. (laughs) We, We are the wealthiest community of Jews in the history of the world with more rights and more privileges than any Jewish community before or since. Scary place. In a way, it's a scary I think place. our lesson, our Torah is telling us, be very, very careful. Because in your success, with the masculine definition of what success means, you are in serious danger of becoming the greedy, power-hungry, right? You know, like, take, take whatever you want. You are going to be tempted by corruption, And in this sense, corruption is not caring what's happening to the people around you, just making sure you you get more. Or whoever you're representing gets more. In this case, Pharaoh. Right? Be very, very careful because that is a slippery slope. And you cannot tell me that this lesson does not apply like more today than ever before for us. Finished a book about Emma Lazarus mm-hmm. and her wonderful poetry, which sits on the Statue of Liberty. And she's a person who had high privilege, never suffered a day of discomfort or uh, hunger. But meeting the Jews that came from Russia in 1883 and had nothing and no work uh, made her become more intelligent. And she was the one who went to the Jewish family service of that time and said, these people must find work, and you have to help them. So she not only got them food, but she gave them Dignity. Purposeful lives. Right? The dignity of work. Yeah. Right? She's somebody to, to hold dear. To, and to emulate, right? To, to, in her comfort and wealth and privilege, was still deeply connected, right, to the needs of others. Because it's possible. It's possible. I think the Joseph story, Pitsula is lifting up the Joseph story as a warning. That it, right, it, it can happen to any of us, including the dreamer. Right, that he becomes, in a sense, you know, corrupt, and we just have to be vigilant, like Lazarus, right, to, to guard our character and our, to continue to, to to do and practice those things that keep us awake and alert to the suffering of those around us. Because it's very easy, Carol, mm. as Carol said, to turn on the television. You know, not to a channel that's going to tell you what's actually happening with people, but you know, but you know, just the. So Joseph doesn't no. come off very well here. I, I don't think so. I I think Joseph does not come off very well here. I think it's a warning about the dangers of of power. Last week, as I recall, we struggled with um, your sharing with us <clears throat> a better translation that came out. He basically Joseph was God. Not he was like God, not God was acting through him, Joseph was God. And I'm wondering now that we had this discussion, 
whether that was sort of a leading indicator of the fact that this is not, this humans can't be, this is not a good thing. Don't even think that you, a human being, can be God, and now we basically, which was it, what is it, do you, do you, is that, I think definitely, definitely, (coughs) Torah is always critical of Egypt and the Egyptians, right? Because they worship, you know, whatever. Pharaoh was God, and you know, their gods, gods are trash, you know, and whatever. Um, So it's this text is always going to be critical of Egypt, as down there, you know, where it's all corrupt and all whatever. And, And I think definitely there's a hint here that even, even an Israelite connected deeply to Yudhei can be tempted to become a god. Right? Like, yeah. I think there's definitely a warning here. For sure. For sure. I think it's... I, you can say, oh, well, Torah thinks he's a hero doing this because he's saving everybody. But I, I, don't, I don't buy it. I think Torah's smarter than that. Right? I mean, I think the tellers of these tales ha- are warning us what happens when we listen only to a certain message of success and, and what that means in the world. I'm just curious, do you think that um, even though he forgave his brothers, that there might have been a seed of still resentment festering inside that, that perhaps uh, you know, this kind of took on a life of its own You know, listening to what you said, um, it's a powerful statement because I'm just thinking as you were talking about Michael Cohen, (laughs) (laughs) but not in terms of the Trumpian world, but in terms of the son of a Holocaust survivor whose father said, is this what I survived the Holocaust for? And you get this power and this money. It even said in a statement, I lost the light, I lost my way. And I think the spiritual lesson here teaching us this morning is really powerful. Happened in our real lives. Mm-hmm. It's not an ancient story, but one that vibrates mm-hmm. in this very second. Of life. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely true, right? That um that it, it's it's happening right now. Okay. If to play devil's advocate, he had not brought his people, we would have all perished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, nobody's so, arguing that. I mean, okay, so so the alternative would have been none of us would be here. No, nobody's saying he shouldn't have brought his family down. But you have to make the rest of Egypt slaves? <laughs> Of course, feed your family first. Of course, put your oxygen mask on before you help others. Of course. But do you need to do that and go ripping everybody else's oxygen masks off and keep it up for yourself? Like, like, right? So, of course, of course, of course, we have to go to Egypt. And, of course, he saves everybody. Absolutely. At the expense of, which didn't have to be. Couldn't he have had a national... You know, service. Okay, so you all serve, and we'll give you grain, and then when things get better, you go back to your yeah. okay, so, so your land. When you were talking about Aaron Lazarus, the Jewish family service that started was serving everyone. So that it's always been non-sectarian service from the very beginnings, and still is. 
And yet, there's still a lot of hatred and anti-Semitism for anything that says Jewish, even if it's non-profit, non-sectarian. And I just think it's interesting. I think, I don't know how to get out of it. I mean, even if he had shared, I think there still would have been hatred. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. okay. But he could sleep. But but he could say, I they can hate me all they want, but I did the right thing. He can't say that here. No. I, did they hate the Jews? Even though it's American Jewish World Service, he was helping everybody. They still hate the Jews. Okay. But but the Jews who are working with AJWS feel a great deal of pride. Jewish World Watch. You know, people feel a great deal of pride in that, and we should. We can't control anti-Semitism. But we can feel good about how we behave in the world, right? Joseph, the, the bit about leaving a corner of your land yep. for, uh, for others, some people who don't. Joseph could have left a corner of your yeah. land. 100%. Yeah. Of course. He had lots of choices. He didn't have to do this. I, I, I look at the really, really broad picture, which is related to that. If you look at this, the whole Torah starting with the first human beings as the physical and moral development of a people, this kind of, for me, sets up Sinai and sets up what comes later. Of course. This demonstrates why <laughs> we need to be told all of these things. That, that doesn't mean we do them, but this is before you have all the detailed mitzvot. Of course. Of course. Sinai is a response to this. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. This is a setup. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because a lot of the stories we have here with the patriarchs and matriarchs, when we look at it, we say, "That's not nice." What they did. You know how 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 can this be the people who we who we really admire? And to me, that sets up later God saying, okay, if you want to live in the promised land, which you can interpret as being physical Egypt, a physical Israel, or a spiritual promised land, then here are the things you need to do in great detail. And Joseph had none of that. He should, or, we, or, or, we say he should have known. I mean, he, <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like all or nothing. I don't want to be yeah. too, I don't okay. want to overwork it too much. You know, that he, he does do good things, right? He does, you know, and, and he does save his family, and he does, you know, he does save Egypt, and he does, so I don't want to make too harsh a case, but yes, it's, I think that this is the individual level, and that's how we end the book of Genesis, and we're going to start the national level, same scenario, and Sinai, of course, is a response to all of it. Yes, or, or the Israelites' understanding of God's response. Is this why the story of Joseph is such a, a novella, a broad thing, because it's so pivotal in terms of... Uh, it's Yes, of, it's huge. Uh, it's pivotal, yes. It brings to mind just to be careful in this day and age in history that following charismatic leaders throughout history Actually, <laughs> <laughs> a totalitarian regime is what he sets up. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, well, we've had many good leaders that are charismatic, 
Uh, yes. Donald is incredibly yeah. charismatic. Yes, but anybody who throws away their thought process right. in following a charismatic leader is doomed. Right. Is, in tr- is doomed. Is, I mean, right. in tr- is in trouble. Even right. if it's a good leader, because right. once you give away yes. your power of discernment, yes. then yeah. when that person's got done. The next, per- or, or whatever, right. or somebody sitting next to that person. I mean, there's just, right? Okay. So let's, let's look at 223. Bottom of the page, you see my star. So now Pencil is talking in general about the Joseph story, how Joseph finds himself in the pit. Joseph finds himself in prison. He finds his vocation. He finds his calling. So we're leaving the corrupt <laughs> um, le- leader. We're going now to the heart of the Joseph narrative, this whole novella. And he says, in, in this sense, Joseph is the one who has been sent ahead to provide for us. He has provided for us a myth that gives us a glimpse into the mysteries. His sense of providence, of life having meaning, may be ours whenever we recognize that our souls belong to a different order of reality as well as to the mundane and material. There is nothing dated about this tale or about this wisdom. Like him, we can know that we live in two worlds or that this world is shot through with glints and glimmers of mysterious connections, far-fetched coincidences that hint to us of immense designs. Turn it over. And he called Pizzola, that word that's cut off, is myth. So myth theology, this is a myth theology of providence and power as a legacy, right? It is also a guidance and an affirmation. We can and do still know this experience thousands of years later, um, in part because they, the old patriarchs, first constructed it. Something with a rending force we see momentarily through this life into another. The helter-skelter suddenly crystallizes into a design. At such moments, we have entered the landscape of the ancestors, dream time. For a spell, the ancient wisdom of the fathers and mothers comes home to us. And at such times, we know that what we, that we do not know, but by some reach, some grace, we intuit the mystery beyond and within us. Only when we accept the incomplete and partial nature of our knowledge, the provisional, may we glimpse the providential. Right? So only when we get it that our knowledge is limited and is about the, is provisional. For now, here's how I understand things, right? Like that it's provisional. Only then can we glimpse the providential. Can we glimpse that this reality is shot through with another reality? And um, Pitzela gives us the words of Wadsworth, uh, Wordsworth here. Um, that we have a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused who's dwelling in the light of setting suns and around the ocean. It's a beautiful poem. Moved by such a sense of the sublime, we find our place with the ancestors. We stand by their wells and look into the depths. We hear their stories as our own. So that the, yes, there's, there's danger to the patriarchal construct, the patriarchal worldview and there is deep wisdom available there as well, right? So, so Pizzola is lifting up the, the places where that masculine wisdom guides us and strengthens us. Um, I want to l- leave us with the fact that 
the climax of the book of Genesis, um, and I don't know who I'm quoting here, I apologize, I don't know if it's Pizzolo or somebody else, because um, I have it <laughs> thus. <laughs> Like, really? Okay, so um, the climax of the book of Genesis is a change in one man's heart. Later in the book of Exodus, it's going to be the change in one woman's heart, the daughter of Pharaoh. The change in Joseph's heart to choose to reconcile versus meeting out justice or getting revenge or exercising his power to hurt saves Jacob's family, our family, so that there is a book of Exodus. From the story of his descent and rise, descent and rise will emerge our story as a people of descent into slavery and eventual rise to be the people covenanted to God. And that rise will be determined in the heart of one person, the daughter of Pharaoh. Like Joseph, she will allow empathy to lead her to the decision to use her power to save the baby in the basket. The baby who will dismantle the very system of oppression that Joseph creates. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website www.ourki.org